Just as a point of clarification, because I know this is a burning issue for many of you, I am not going for some kind of new look or some phase. I'm not trying to be a sexy pastor. Um, that's the second week in a row I use the word sexy from the pulpit. Um, I had to preach at Fusion, which is like a young people's meeting on Friday. And I just figured if I looked like a fob, they wouldn't listen to me, so I got a haircut. Uh, I get a haircut without my glasses, and so they just do whatever they do, and then I open my eyes and look at what it is, so that's what happened. And then my glasses broke, so I'm borrowing Shiny's contacts. Um, and we happened to have the same prescription, so it was a sign that we were meant to be. So that's, that's what explains all of this, because I know you were dying to know. Since that's past us now, uh, we can talk about Christ crucified. This is our sermon series that we began last week, uh, as we're looking for the next 11 weeks together at why Jesus Christ went to the cross and what happened when he did. C.S. Lewis, when he was trying to talk about the importance of theology, trying to underscore how relevant and practical it was, he gave this story. He told about a time when he was giving a talk on theology, and one person said to him, look, I don't need all this heady, highfalutin knowledge stuff. Theology is sort of seen as Bible, crusty, old, dead doctrine, because I've experienced God in the desert. C.S. Lewis responded that, in, in part, that's actually true. That experiencing God is far more richer than the things that you find in creeds or doctrine. He, he likened it to going to the Atlantic and standing by the beach. And he said it, it doesn't compare to actually stand by the beach and feel the waves and feel the breeze. He likened that to, as opposed to studying the Atlantic in a map. So surely one is better than the other. But he said there's a few things you can't ignore, and that is that the map is actually the collective experience of hundreds of people who have gone to the Atlantic. Hundreds of people who have stood at the shore and sailed the seas. And so the map is very real in one sense. And he also said that if you'll be satisfied for just a stroll by the beach, just to stand by the shore, then you never need a map. But if you ever want to go any further, if you want to go any deeper, if you ever want to get to London, you, you need the maps. If you ever want to encounter the sea to its fullest, in its most real sense, you need the maps. In fact, he said, it'd be dangerous to try it without the maps. He, he then went on to say that theology is incredibly practical. That if you do not listen to theology, it will not mean that you don't have ideas about God. It'll just mean that you have bad ones, wrong ones, out-of-date, muddled ones. Because how we think about God is vitally connected to what is true about God, how we worship God, how we know God. And so I get that in this series, for the next 12 weeks, I can see how it will sound heady, how it can sound theological. We're not doing a seven-week series on how to improve your marriage or four steps to your finances. So I get how this can sound a bit less practical. But what I want you to hear is, I long for you to know the maps. I long for you to not stand at the shore and have this simple one-person experience with Jesus, but for you to go into the deepest of seas, for you to sail the seas. And to do that, and to do that well, you need the maps. To encounter Jesus most fully, to experience him most really, we need theology. We need an understanding of what Christ has done for us. 
So I, I want you to fight the temptation to think that this is not practical. This is intensely practical because it will shape how you know and what you know about Jesus. One theologian has said, until you understand his cross, you do not fully understand Christ. So since we want to know Christ and love Christ and better serve Christ and better worship Christ, we want to understand his cross. So today, we're considering message two. We're talking about Christ crucified for our atonement. Christ crucified for our atonement. So when you talk about atonement, now you're in the maps. You're in that the world of theology and those terms that can sound old or crusty or lifeless or dead. But, but what I want you to hear is that atonement is at the very heart of what we believe. You pull that piece out, it's like pulling out the wrong Jenga piece. The whole thing is going to come crashing down. We need to consider the atonement. Atonement can be described in a bunch of different ways. It's got shades of meaning and nuances. You could describe it as the idea that we are cleansed from our sin, that the wrath of God is removed from us, mercy extended to us, that we've been reconciled back to the family of God, that we are adopted into his home, all, all kinds of meanings. One person has simply said, atonement is the idea that we are brought to at one with God. So when we talk about atonement, we're talking about the means by which God has brought us to at one with himself. That God, in his grace, is going to take a sinful, estranged, separated, removed people and bring them to at one with himself. Right? Our sin has separated us from God. You have to hear that. Sin is not this sort of thing that exists in space, sort of floating without attachment to anything or anyone. Our sin is always against someone. It's always personal in nature. What we do, even when we do it alone, thinking it doesn't affect anyone, is directed towards God. This is why David, in the Old Testament, he will sleep with a woman that's not his wife, kill that woman's husband, and what does he say? Against you. Have I sinned and done that which is evil in your sight? Because David gets it. What I've done to this woman, what I've done to her husband, is ultimately, most profoundly, done towards God. So our sin has separated, removed, distanced us from God, and atonement is the means by which God brings us at one with himself again. So what I simply want to talk through is that God gave Jesus... For our atonement. That simple sentence is all I want us to think through today. God gave Jesus for our atonement. Those will be the movements that we consider in our time together. God gave Jesus for our atonement. Let me pray and then we'll consider this together. We're just going to ask God to help us as we look at his word. Father, I thank you for this time. We ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would give to us fresh affection, new affection for Jesus Christ and him crucified, that you would help us to see the atonement as central to our faith, that it would produce in us right knowledge, which would lead to right worship, that as we see what you have graciously done for us, we would be moved to praise. We pray that you would help us to glorify God and enjoy him forever. As we consider Christ crucified, convict us of sin and at the same time show us our Savior, Jesus Christ, our New Testament sacrifice, slain for our atonement. 
Holy Spirit, Beth, preach and better sermon than I can say with my lips, because I need you to apply your word to your people in my own heart. This is our prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. God. God gave Jesus for our atonement. We start with God. If you're going to start talking about atonement, you have to necessarily begin with God, because atonement begins with God. So what I want to do is I want to do sort of what they do on Lost, which is give you a flashback and then a flash forward, right? Uh, so we flash back on the show. They always bring you back and then they bring you forward. And, and I know Shibu's not here, but Shibu's panicking somewhere because he listens to the Lost podcast and it's not a flash forward, it's a flash sideways, and, but, but you get the idea, right? So we're going to flash back. I want to talk to you about God in the Old Testament and then we're going to flash forward or sideways into the New Testament, into our age. So atonement begins with God. So we flash back. The whole thing starts with a God who has redeemed his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, and then graciously tells them, I'm going to come and dwell among you. I'm going to live with you. And it's this incredible moment. You've got Exodus 34, and your mind should be blown by the thought that God is going to come and dwell among his people. God, whom the heavens cannot hold, is going to live in a tent because his people live in tents at the center of camp. God is going to literally camp with his people. And your mind should be amazed because it's sort of like Eden. It's God dwelling with his people again. Except there's a problem. It's not Eden because the people have sinned. And how is a holy God going to dwell among a sinful people? If all our sin is really saying we don't want God, we want to do this our way, we hate God, but we so badly want him to dwell with us and live among us. This is the dilemma in Exodus in the Old Testament. You've got the people who are going to build the golden calf who want nothing to do with God. And so God says, I'm not coming because if I do, I'm going to consume you. I'm going to light you up in the desert. And so the people, what do they do? They repent and they beg God, you've got to come, you've got to stay with us. They send Moses to the mountain saying, plead with him, and Moses does. Moses says, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't let us go anywhere. We have to have you. So, so we want you, we need you, we want you in our lives, but we keep sinning and we don't want you. We don't want anything to do with you. Get away from us. How is a holy God going to live among a sinful people? Sinners can no more survive the presence of a holy God than grass can survive on the sun. Grass cannot dwell on the sun, nor can sinners dwell in the presence of a holy God. So what are you going to do? It's here that God provides a way. God will graciously give a way of atonement, of atonement with himself. So you think about this. God is the offended party. God is the one who's wrong. God is the one who's sinned against. And yet God provides a solution. You think about that from your own life. When you are wronged by someone, when you're in marriage and your spouse does something wrong against you, what's your posture? You sort of fold your hands and you wait. You wait to see what they're going to do. What, what words are they going to say? What deeds are they going to do? What gifts are they going to bring? How many flowers? Because you're not budging. I'm not saying Shainu's the one. I'm just saying. Right? You're waiting to see what are they going to do to win me back. The offended party gets to do what? You get to pout. You get to give the silent treatment. You are the one who's wronged. And you're going to wait to see what they do to win you. The Old Testament, the God of the Scriptures, is completely different. 
He is wronged. He is the one who's offended. He is the one who's rejected. He is the one who's rebelled against. He is the one they want nothing to do with. And yet he provides a way of atonement. He initiates a solution. Atonement begins with God. It's God's idea. It's a God who is chasing a rejecting, rebellious, but needy people. So you flash forward. You get to the New Testament, and what do you see? The gospel is whose idea? God's. Shadowed in the Old Testament, but fulfilled in the New Testament, the gospel is God's idea. It's not that we were sitting around going, how are we going to get God? How are we going to receive Him? How are we going to chase Him? How are we going to be brought to at one minute with Him? It's, it's a God who is chasing a sinful people. To help you see this, I want you to answer the question, who killed Jesus? Who stands ultimately behind the death of Jesus? Because how we answer that most finally, most ultimately, gets us thinking about atonement. Because you can answer that in a number of ways. You could say it was Judas, right? He's the one who kissed Jesus, 30 pieces of silver, betrayed him, Jesus died. You could say it was the Jews. They're the ones that brought him to trial, tried him, condemned him, sent him to his execution. You could say it's Pilate. He's the one who convicted this innocent man, washed his hands of the whole situation. You could say it's the Romans. It's the Roman nails and the Roman spear that is put onto Jesus' body. It's on a Roman cross that Jesus dies. But that's not who the scriptures ultimately place the cross on. Ultimately say the cross was the work of who? Listen to how the scriptures describe it. In Isaiah 53, if you go back to your Old Testament, if, if you've read the passage, read it again, if you know it, remember it, you, you've got these series of descriptions about the suffering servant. The idea that he's going to be despised and rejected and he's going to be spit on and smitten and, and language like our iniquities will be placed on him. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And then you get this most puzzling phrase. Because here's what the prophet says. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So who does Isaiah say is ultimately behind the crushing of the suffering servant? God. Or, or you read in Acts chapter 2. Paul is going to address the people at Pentecost. The Spirit has fallen. Jesus has died, ascended back into heaven. And he gives this speech to 3,000 people or so that are before him. Listen to what he says. This Jesus delivered up according to, hear this, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He says, you crucified and killed him, but... All of that was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He'll say the same thing in Acts 3. And then in Acts 4, the apostles are gathered together and they're praying to God. Listen to their prayer to God. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you, God, appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. If you're tracking with me, I know there's got to be questions that come, which is, is it Pilate? Is it Paul? Is it the Jews? Is it the Romans? Is it us? Or, or is it God? 
I'm going to leave you with attention. We'll talk if you've got that question. But what I want you to hear is that the scriptures say everything that happened to Jesus was God's idea. That God's purposes were fulfilled in the cross. That it wasn't that Christ died and God took this horrible thing and made something good out of it. But atonement has always been God's initiative. God's doing. God seeing an estranged lost people and doing what it took to bring at one with himself. If you talk about atonement, you've got to start with God. This was God's gracious provision to redeem a people to himself. God gave. Second, God gave. In atonement, you've got to have a giving, a, a sacrifice. When you use the word gave, you're immediately in the world of sacrifice. If I, if I give of my time, if I give of my resources, if I gave my life to a cause, I've sacrificed my time, I've sacrificed my resources, I've sacrificed my life. Atonement will require a giving, a sacrifice. Alright, so you flash back to the Old Testament. What is it that God gave for atonement? If God gave to the people what they deserve, what would they get? They'd get death. If God gave to the people what they deserve, they should get death. He should line every one of them up on an altar. He should bind them. He should slit their throat. He should let the blood run. And he should have their death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. So Paul's analogy is, listen, you get wages for your work. Well, the wages you earn for the work of your sin is death. What should happen for your sin is death. God, if he gave to his people what they deserve, would give to them death. And there is no removing of sin apart from death, apart from blood. Hebrews 9, the passage that Jeremy read for us. Verse 22 says, For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That sin requires the shedding of blood. It requires death. Death has to happen when there's sin. Which is why in Genesis, after the fall of man, you get to around chapter 5 and you've got this long list of genealogy. Those are the chapters we skip right over because it's Adam begets Seth and Seth begat him and he begat him and it's just this long list. But, but how does that list go? It's Adam begat Seth and he lived this many years and then he died. And then Seth begat him and then he lived this many years and then he died. And it's just this repeated refrain, and it's almost like a lament by the early writers saying, do you see what the world has happened? Adam and Eve were created not to die, and yet sin has come into the world, and generation after generation after generation, they're dying. The wages of sin is death. If there is sin, there must be death. But God gave. God gave away a provision in His grace to atone, to at one meant them to Himself. Leviticus 17, verse 11. Just hear the verse. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you. I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So here's what God does. In the Old Testament, He gives to them the sacrificial system. I need you to hear this. The sacrificial system is a gift of grace from God to the people. 
It's a gift to the people. Because God is going to prescribe and describe the way in which they can be at one minute with Himself. They're not left to somehow try to please this God. That's how the entire pagan system works. If, if you don't get the gospel, you act like the pagans do. How do the pagans reach God, appease God? They would invent all kinds of sacrifices and hope that some of it would connect with this capricious, angry, temperamental God and hope that it would appease Him. So you've got child sacrifices, you've got them cutting themselves, letting out their blood, dancing, all of it hoping somehow God won't be ticked anymore. And it's not just the Old Testament. Christianity Today had an article of a woman standing by the Ganges River in India weeping. And when a missionary came by and asked her what had happened, she talked about how she had just thrown her six-month-old baby into the Ganges because things were so terrible at home she had no idea how to otherwise appease the gods. And the missionary began to tell her the gospel and she wept saying, why weren't you here 30 minutes earlier? Because there's something in the human heart that needs to get right with God. And we will either do it our way, through religion, through good works, through good deeds, and we'll somehow try to appease this God, or we'll receive the gracious provision of God. God gave to them a way. And so in the flashback in the Old Testament, they would grab an animal. If you were a worshiper, you brought your animal to the temple. You would place your hands on this animal and you would begin to just confess your sins. You would stand there and just confess aloud your sins holding on to this animal. You've got a, a lamb or a bull or a goat and you're holding on to this beast and you just begin confessing your sins. God, I am greedy. I do not pay people as I'm supposed to. I'm holding back money. I'm not generous. God, I'm lustful. I've slept with this person who's not my wife. I'm a fornicator or I'm an adulterer. Uh, God, I'm, I'm hateful. I don't want to forgive. You would just begin to enumerate your sins. Sort of like that it's passing through your fingers onto this beast. Your sins transferred to it. And then you, the worshiper, took a knife and you slit this goat or this lamb's throat. And you watched as the blood poured out. And if you get a sense of how gross and graphic that is, the, the scriptures want that. So that you get how costly and how horrific your sin is. That literally you watch this thing twitch to death as a symbol of what your sin costs. And then a priest would come and collect the blood and present it to God. Sort of like saying, God, the wages have been met. Death has happened. The wages of sin is death. You please atone this man because death has happened in his place. And you did this every single day. And then once a year they even had a day called the Day of Atonement. A day when it wasn't just your sins but all the sins of the people. It was so important it was just called the day. If you said the day, you knew what you were talking about. It's what today we call Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And on that day, the high priest would take a bull. And before he even sacrificed for his people, he's got to first cleanse himself and his family. So he would take a bull and he would hold its head and he would begin to confess the sins of his life and his family's life. God, my children are sinners. My wife is a sinner. I am a sinner. And would begin to enumerate his sins. And again, he would offer this sacrifice. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, he would get to walk past the curtain of the Holy of Holies, which symbolizes God's presence, and he would offer the blood to God. 
And then he'd go outside and he'd grab two goats to represent the sins of the people. He'd sacrifice one in this same exact way. And then the other goat, they would lay the sins of all the people. God, we are a sinful people. We have forgotten the poor. We are unjust. We are lustful. We are sinners. And then they would take this goat and set it into the wilderness. And it came to be called the scapegoat. And it was the symbol of all the sins of the people being removed into and away from the people. And all the while as you're doing this in the flashback in the Old Testament, you've got this nagging suspicious feeling like, is this enough? Is this really doing the work of at-one-ment? Like if I've slept with someone who's not my wife or my husband, is shedding the blood of a goat really bringing me at-one-ment with God? And Hebrews, looking back on it, will say, Hebrews chapter 9, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so you've got this nagging feeling like, is this sacrifice enough? And then as you see it offered every single day, and then on top of that, on the day, you've got this nagging feeling like, if this is doing something, why is it repeated all the time? And then on top of that, you've got this suspicion and this nagging feeling like, how effective is this if, if the one offering it for us is just as messed up as us? If the priest has to cut a bull for himself before he's going to act as a representative for the people or a mediator from God, how effective is this whole thing? And, and you've got this nagging suspicion and this doubt and this worry because how much is it accomplishing if it's not all of us brought into the presence of God, but one man, once a year, gets to go into a small dark room called the Holy of Holies. And by the end of the Old Testament, you see that though this is a gracious gift of God, a provision of God, you're left with this feeling in your heart going, we need a better sacrifice, and we need a better priest. That brings us to our third word, God gave Jesus. Because now you flash forward, God gave Jesus. And in the New Testament, you need atonement, you need shedding of blood, the wages of sin is death, but it will not be the blood of bulls or calves or goats, but God gave Jesus. The most well-known verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. Romans 8, how much God has loved us if he has not spared his son, but gave him up for us all. And what did that giving look like? First Peter tells us, it is not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus, you have been saved. The lamb that was slain. So that in the New Testament, Jesus becomes that innocent creature whose blood is shed for atonement. And suddenly all the questions that were unanswered in the past are answered in Christ. Like all the things... Again, you lost fans. All those questions that you're waiting to be answered, right? How, how is all this going to play out? How is this all going to tie together? So you've got these questions in the Old Testament. Why is this done every day? And how come it's a bull or a calf? And how is that going to torn? Why is it a sinful high priest? And why only one guy? All those questions follow with you, and they're answered in the finale, in the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Because he's the better high priest. He's the high, better sacrifice. Hebrews, the passage Jeremy read for us says, it's not that Jesus is the high priest who goes into the small holy of holies, one man, but Jesus brings the sacrifice to heaven. Not to the room that symbolized his presence, but to the room 
where he actually dwells. His ministry is better. It's the difference between virtual and real. It's the difference between playing Madden and playing for the Eagles. You think one is great until you realize, listen, you're sitting on your couch. It's virtual. It's not real. But then you see what Jesus is. His sacrifice is not into the Holy of Holies. He brings the sacrifice to God. So that now, guess what? It's not all of us trying to squeeze into a room in Jerusalem, but we have been granted access into the throne room of God because we have a better high priest. A high priest who doesn't have to first offer a sacrifice for himself before he can represent his people and mediate God, but a high priest who is both fully God and fully man. Fully man so he can represent us to God and fully God so that he can mediate himself to us. A high priest who is without sin. A high priest who doesn't die, Hebrews will say. So that it's not you've got to have one priest after another, but you have one high priest. I am not a priest. We have one priest now, Hebrews says. His name is Jesus, who offers to God a better sacrifice, not the blood of bulls and goats, but himself. So that this thing is not repeated every single day, but Hebrews says he was slain once for all. Blood shed once for the redemption of all. He's a better priest and a better sacrifice. God gave Jesus for our atonement. We'll end with that. God gave Jesus for our atonement. This is for us. For us. You need to know that much of the battle on this doctrine is, is in these last words. For our atonement. Because today, within the world and within the church, there is this movement to say, Jesus died, but don't say it's for us. Even churches and pastors are swayed by the idea that Jesus died maybe as an example, that Jesus died as a, a demonstration of something great. But the scriptures clearly say it is for our sins that he died. 1 Corinthians 15, for our sins Christ died in accordance with the scriptures. For our sins. So that in a very real sense, you and I grab laid of hold of him. We confess our sins upon him, transferred our iniquity onto him, his innocence transferred to us, and we watched his blood shed for our atonement with God. Christ crucified for our atonement. And then consider what God has accomplished through the cross. Do you know why you don't have to have a nagging feeling like your sins aren't really taken care of? Because God gave Jesus for our atonement. You know why you can overcome that fear like you're far away from God? You know those seasons when you feel like you're far from God and, and you don't know what you've got to do to get Him back and to get back with God? God gave Jesus for our atonement. So you know what you do? You rehearse the atonement. It wasn't my idea to get to God. God made a way. God gave Jesus. God offered Jesus once for all a better high priest, a better sacrifice. He died. My sins are with him. I placed my hands on him. My sins went to him. His innocence went to me. And you rehearse the atonement till it is real in your heart. Because God made a way for you to be at one moment with himself through Jesus Christ. You know why we don't all buy a ticket 
and get on a plane and go to Jerusalem and find a temple and find a bull and squeeze into that small room? It's because God gave Jesus for our atonement. It's finished. All the work is done once for all for our sake. For how, so how do we respond? We respond with sacrifice, but not the way Jesus did. We have no bloodletting left to do. We have no dying left to do. Romans 12 says that we worship God how? By offering ourselves as living sacrifices to the Lord. You and I get placed on an altar. You know what the incredible thing is? We're living sacrifices. No knife to our throat because someone else already died. So we get to sacrifice ourselves as living sacrifices to God. Meaning you've got all of me because you gave all yourself to me. Or, or another way to, to respond is what we're going to do in a moment. As soon as I'm finished, you get to sing. And the Old Testament scriptures say that we get to offer to God a sacrifice of praise. So that it's not blood he requires anymore. He got it from his son. You get to respond with joyful, loud, exuberant, glad singing. And God loves your praise. God inhabits your praise. Because he died, you live. Because he gave his life, you get to praise him with a sacrifice of praise. You get to live your life for the God who gave himself for you. So Christ crucified for our atonement so that we can be brought to atonement with God. Amen. Let's pray.